are listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. We are located in Thunder Bay, Ontario. To find out more about us, please visit www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thank you for joining us today. It's our joy this morning to hear the word, to reflect upon it, have it applied to our hearts. Our sermon text for this morning is Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32 and going all the way through verse 45. Let's give our attention to God's good word now, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. Hear the word of our God. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your good word this morning. Your word is the medicine that we need. And we come to you this morning, in light of this text, asking for one thing. We ask that you would show us your son. We ask that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ once again. That you would reveal to us Christ crucified. Oh, Father, we confess that is our, our need today. Above all else, we need your Son. We need to see him once again afresh in the Scriptures. And, and we ask is that as you show us your Son, Jesus, that you would bring fresh repentance to our hearts. That as we behold your Son in the Word, that our sins would be exposed once again. That we would see our pride and our envy and our covetousness we pray that by the preaching of the cross, you would slay our many sins, that you would kill them. 
Father, we pray as, as you show us Christ, would you give us faith? Oh, that we might be like the woman with the flow of blood. If I touch even the hem of his garments, I will be made well. Give us this sort of faith, this confidence, this persuasion of Jesus. Oh, Father, we pray this morning, won't you minister to our hearts through your word and the power of the Spirit. Do what we can't do. We pray this. Do this for your glory. Do it for our great joy. We pray this in your, your son's good name. Amen. So we've been in the Gospel of Mark for some time, and as you work through the Gospel of Mark, the more material you get behind yourself, the closer you are to the cross. And so we've been studying the cross as we get closer to the cross. As we think about the cross in the Gospel of Mark, the cross is an event of perplexity. Meaning you can hear of the cross with your ears. You can actually see the cross with your eyes. And even though you hear it with your ears and see it with your eyes, you still misunderstand it. We find this perplexity embedded in the Gospel of Mark. and In chapters 8 through 10, we, we notice this clear pattern. What happens in chapters 8 through 10? Well, well Jesus comes to his disciples and he announces to them his, his mission as the Christ. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to suffer there and die there. And what happens? Well, the disciples hear these words about the cross and then they respond and, and they rebel. They sin. They misunderstand what Jesus is talking about. We can just chart out this pattern. In chapter 8, Jesus announces to the disciples he's going to the cross. The Son of Man must suffer many things. And what does Peter do? Well, well, Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Next chapter, Jesus announces the cross again to his disciples. And, and what happens? Well, we hear the disciples, we overhear them speaking about who's the greatest among them. And then we hear this conversation between James or, or John and Jesus and John's wondering if he should go snuff out this, this ministry of this exorcist who's casting out demons in Jesus' name. And we see this pattern in our own text this morning in the third announcement of the cross. After Jesus announces that he's going to go to the cross, what happens? Well, we find the disciples, all of them, concerned about honor and glory for themselves. And the truth of the cross in chapters 8 through 10 has been plainly set before the disciples again and again and again, and they cannot grasp it for themselves. And this whole pattern is summed up in chapter 10, verse 32. Mark records for us. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Mark says, Jesus and his band of disciples, they're, they're headed to the cross. And then Mark says, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And what a poignant picture of our, our Savior. Here is Jesus ahead of his disciples, his face set like flint to the cross, leading. And what are his disciples doing? Well, Mark tells us they're behind him and they were amazed and those who followed were, were afraid. So here's Jesus ahead of his disciples leading the charge and here's the disciples behind him perplexed, troubled, bewildered by the cross and what Jesus is going to do as he goes to Jerusalem. And through this pattern that we find embedded in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Mark is pressing upon us the, the perplexing nature of the cross. And what Mark is preaching to us is this, that by human reason, that by human cunning, that by human effort, no one can grasp a hold of the cross of Jesus. No one can make sense of it. And Jesus' words ring out loud and true. 
he confirms this theology. He says to us, with man it is impossible. But we've come to see as we've traveled in these chapters 8, 9, and 10 that our impotence, that our weakness, that even our sinfulness does not close us off from grasping a hold of the cross or the kingdom of God. Rather, what we see in these chapters is that when we acknowledge our sin, when we acknowledge our weakness, when we are aware of our impotence, that's actually the first step of grabbing a hold of the cross. And Jesus preaches good news to the weak and the sinful, he says. With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And what we find Jesus doing in these three chapters is that in the face of his disciples' confusion and sin and rebellion is that he continues to work for their salvation. He persists with his men. He preaches in their cluttered ears the the message of the gospel. He says, you must receive the kingdom of God like a child. He calls to their calloused hearts. He says, you must lose your life in order that you might save your life. And he summons again and again in these chapters, here's this refrain, the first will be last and the last will be first. And what the Lord Jesus is doing in these three chapters is he's, he's calling his disciples to empty themselves. He's calling them to despair of themselves and to embrace the power of God in the gospel. And the precious good news that we find in chapters 8, 9, and 10 is that Jesus is the Savior who mediates the power of God to these men. He brings the power of God to these men again and again and again, and we see this this portrait of Jesus. If we could paint what's going on in chapters 8, 9, and 10, is Jesus leading his blind and sinful men in the path of salvation. This is what we're going to see in our text this morning. We're going to see Jesus' redemptive leading of his blind men. He's going to expose their sin, he's going to call for faith, and he's going to bring the power of God to bear upon them as he preaches the gospel to them. And as Jesus leads his blind men into salvation, he reveals three matters to his disciples that we have to take notice of in this text. We can just list them quickly this morning. First, we'll we'll notice that there is a barrier to the cross. And we're going to notice that, secondly, that Jesus does a work. He, he brings a correction from the cross. And a third thing, Jesus calls us to the cross. So we notice three things. There's a barrier, there's a correction, and there's a call. So we can begin our, our work this morning on our text by considering the barrier that keeps us from the cross. So we've heard Jesus' third passion prediction this morning and we we worked through these passion predictions last week in detail. And after Jesus gives us this word, we've already noticed this pattern. Jesus preaches the gospel and then something happens with the disciples. So here's what happens. In verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to Jesus with a request. Now before we consider the, the request of these two brothers, we have to remember who these two men are. We can sum up really shortly. These two men were were disciples who held privilege and proximity in the ministry of Jesus. So we can remember the story of these two men. In terms of privilege, these brothers were among the initial disciples of the Lord Jesus. They heard the authoritative summons of Jesus shortly after Peter and Andrew, and James and John responded to Jesus' call by leaving behind their boats and their nets and even their, their father. These men had privileged standing among the twelve, and it's evidenced in in this list of disciples in chapter 3. Mark gives us the names of the twelve disciples. Who's in first place? 
Peter. Who's in second place? Well, it's James. And who's in third place? Well, it's John. And it was to these men that Jesus gave the nickname Sons of Thunder. So we can say as we remember the story of James and John, these were men of, of privilege. But they also had proximity. Meaning that these, these brothers enjoyed unprecedented access to, to Jesus in his ministry. You can remember back when Jairus came up to Jesus and he wanted Jesus to come with him to heal his, his daughter. And they find out the news that the little girl is dead, but Jesus persists and he goes. But when he goes into the house, who does he bring with him? Well, he only brings Peter, James, and John. It's these brothers who get to witness the power of Jesus as Jesus raises this girl from, from death to life. Jesus says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Again, when Jesus climbed the high mountain, who did he take with him? Well, he only took three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And it was these brothers who witnessed the appearances of Elijah and Moses on the mountain. It was these men who heard the, the booming voice from heaven declare, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It was these men who saw the glory of Jesus revealed for all to see. He was transformed before them and his, his clothing shone like bright light. So here are the men. They have privilege and they share in proximity. So the question is, what do these brothers leverage their privilege and their proximity for? What are they going to do with this? And we quickly find out as they come to Jesus in verse 35. The brothers say to Jesus, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This is a, a breathtaking request. Essentially, they're asking Jesus, give me a blank check. I want to do with it whatever I want to. Jesus is a wise man and he is leery of his disciples. And, and like any parent, he does not give an unqualified yes to his children. He wants to hear what they want first. And so Jesus replies, well, what do you want me to do for you? And it's here that the brothers come to Jesus with their specific request. They, they say to Jesus, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Kind of a strange request for us to think about. What does this mean? Sit at my right hand, sit at my left hand. Well, we have to consider what's been going on in the Gospel of Mark. What these men are doing is they've been piecing together the ministry and the preaching of Jesus. They've heard Jesus' announcement. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? Well, they say, well, Jesus is preaching the, the arrival of great, God's great kingdom. The, the day of justice has arrived. A day of power, a day of might. Jesus said it's coming. It's here. Even more, these men have heard Peter's confession. In, in Mark chapter 8, they heard Peter say, you are the Christ. And they went with Jesus up on top of the mountain and there they saw the, the glory of Jesus revealed. So these men are piecing it all together. They say, here's the promised king. He's in our midst. Here is the one who's going to rule over all things, all peoples, all places. Here is the Messiah of God. And so these men are no dummies. They're shrewd. They see glory. They see power. They see prestige. And they desperately want to get in on this for themselves. And they, they're saying to themselves... We need to get in on the ground level of this movement. We need to get investor stocks, investor shares in this startup company. Even more, we need to claim for ourselves positions of authority before someone else does. This is going to be good for us. And so they come to Jesus and they ask, well, 
Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. We've been traveling in Mark's gospel for some time and we we know clearly there's something wrong with these words that the disciples bring to Jesus and it's reflected as Jesus responds to his men. Jesus replies to them in verse 38. He says, You do not know what you're asking. And then Jesus rejects their requests in verse 40. He says, No. But to sit at my right hand, Jesus says, or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So Jesus gives an answer. But here we need to pause and do some work. We have to ask, well, what's wrong with James and John? What's going on in their hearts as they come to Jesus and they ask this question? We find an answer when we, when we start to compare these two brothers, James and John, with the other people that we have met in the Gospel of Mark. The other supplicants, the other people who have come to Jesus to find, to ask him questions. So we can travel back to Mark chapter 1. And in Mark chapter 1, we meet this, this leper. And how did the leper come to Jesus, we ask? Well, he came to Jesus kneeling and imploring. Even more, the leper came to Jesus and spoke with a mouth of faith. He said, if you will, you can make me clean. And what did the leper find from Jesus in his faith? Well, he found salvation from Jesus. We're going to go to Mark chapter 2 and we, we meet the paralytic. How did the paralytic come to Jesus? Well, he was paralyzed, so he couldn't walk to Jesus, but he he was literally carried by four friends to Jesus. And and these men were driven by faith. And the crowd was so dense that they could not get to Jesus through the door, so they went up on the roof and they dug in faith through through the roof and they lowered their friend down into the saving presence of Jesus. And we can ask, well, what did this man find? Well, he found salvation. Where we can remember the woman with the flow of blood. How did she come to Jesus? Well, she came to Jesus despairing of every medical practice in Israel. She came to Jesus penniless because she had spent all of her money looking for a remedy. Even more importantly, she came with faith. She came persuaded of Jesus. She was saying in her mind, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. She comes to Jesus, she lays hold of his garments, and what does she find? She finds salvation. But here come James and John, men blessed with privilege, second and third place among the disciples. Here come James and John, James and John, prestige. Even more, here comes James and John, they had proximity, they were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They've seen Jesus' power and glory, and how do they come to Jesus? Well, they don't come to Jesus kneeling or imploring. Rather, they came with pride in their hearts and audacity. And they came to Jesus and they said, Give us what we want. They did not come to Jesus to find mercy in their day of trouble. They did not come to Jesus to find needed relief from their many sins. Rather, they came to Jesus with their eyes set upon advancement. Their eyes were set upon power and prestige. And from pride, they spoke to the Lord Jesus. Give us the best seats in your kingdom. That's what we really want. That's what we really need. And what Mark is showing us in this narrative is the cancer that is going on in the hearts. He's revealing the hearts of the disciples to us. 
And what we find is that for these men, following after Jesus was just an opportunity for advancement. For these men, the preaching of the gospel was a, a chance to gain power. These men did not come for Christ in this instance. They did not request the mercy or the grace of Jesus. Rather, they just came to Jesus to get stuff. I want the best seats in your kingdom. Give us what we want. But before we shake our heads at James and John, we have more work to do. And the sad reality is that this cancer we see revealed in James and John is a cancer that actually lies in the hearts of all of Jesus' disciples. Mark points this out to us. He won't let us be deceived. He says this in verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So Mark is telling us these men get angry at James and John. We have to understand what's going on in their hearts. These men are not filled with righteous anger. They're not saying, I can't believe that these, these James and John, these brothers, would distort the gospel of grace like that. I can't believe they would just go to Jesus to get stuff from him. Rather, it was something more like this. I can't believe James and John would jump out of line like that. I can't believe that they would encroach upon my rights, my privileges. What about my glory? What about my honor? What Mark is doing in this episode is he's teaching us about the great danger of discipleship. And the great danger of discipleship is turning the gospel into a story of, of human advancement. The danger of coming to Jesus for stuff and not for his mercy or his grace. And if we hold up the mirror of God's word to our souls this morning, what we'll find is that this cancer that we see in James and John and the remaining 12 often resides in our own souls, invading our own spiritual lives, exerting its force in how we live. But the question is, well, how can we, we know if we have this cancer that infected the 12? How can we know if this lust for advancement and power and prestige is working in our hearts? And it's here that verse 41 is so helpful. As we think about application, verse 41 is the, the key to applying this text to our hearts. Why? Well, many of us are not, are not gutsy like James and John. I'm not gutsy like James and John. I don't go to Jesus and say, give me what I want, Jesus. I want to sit at your right hand. I want to sit at your left hand. Instead, we, we tend to work with more subtlety. Our idolatry, our sin is a little more passive-aggressive in nature. Instead of coming to Jesus and saying, give me what I want, we instead murmur about those who do that. We stand in the background speaking and murmuring among ourselves saying, well, I can't stand him or her. I can't believe that they would say that. We often show our cancer through the green monster of envy, just like the disciples. Verse 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. So we can ask ourselves this morning, well, well how can we know if we've lost sight of Jesus' mercy and grace? How can we know if we've, we've distorted the gospel? Well, it's evident always in how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Just think about it. When a brother or sister advances in the rank or position in ministry or any other fear of life, how do you respond when your brother and sister advances in rank? What's going on in your heart? What happens in your heart when a sister has a polished and useful gift? You see it. Here's this person in the body of Christ. They have this useful gift. What does your heart do in response? 
What do you do when a brother receives acknowledgement for his work while, while yours goes unnoticed? His gets applause, yours gets ignored. How are you responding? What's going on in your heart? Do you chafe with anger? Do you grow indignant? Do you, do you murmur? Do you grow angry? What Mark is showing us is that these are sure signs of, of cancer. They're sure signs that we've turned the gospel of grace into something other than it's not that we're looking for advancement, that we're, our hearts are set on power and prestige. Mark is helping us diagnose our hearts. And so we see in our text that the disciples are out of step with Jesus. Clearly so. Jesus has been preaching in their ears for three chapters the details of the cross. And in our, our text, we see the explicit nature of the cross. Jesus says, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But James and John and the remaining 12, what have they been doing? Well, they've been scheming about positions of power. They've been dreaming about days of, of glory. And so here's Jesus, and he, he sees the cancer in his disciples. And the question is, what is the Lord Jesus going to do about it? And what we see in our text is so instructive for us, for our lives in Christ. Jesus doesn't, out of great frustration, yell at his men or beat them into submission. Rather, he does what he has done so many times. He, he takes his men, his callous men, his hard-hearted men, back to the gospel of grace. And he preaches the cross in their ears loudly. And Jesus does this for an important reason. Jesus understands that the preaching of the cross is the only instrument that can correct their sinful hearts. And this should change the way we fight sin as we see Jesus fight the sin in his disciples. He sees sin in his disciples, so what does he do? He preaches the cross to them. If we see sin in our hearts, what must we do? We must preach the cross into our hearts. That's how we kill sin. And so in our text, we see Jesus going to work and he's preaching the truth of the cross and he does this through, through three pungent symbols. He points them to a cup. He points them to a baptism, and he points them to a ransom payment. And we can look at each one of these. In verse 38, Jesus begins speaking about a cup. He asks, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? So Jesus is teaching in verse 38 that he is going to drink a cup. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? But the question is, as we read this text, well, what is this cup? Even more, whose cup is this? Who does this cup belong to? And here we find an answer in the Old Testament. And when we go to the Old Testament, we find that the Lord has a cup, and that he has reserved this cup for the wicked and the unrighteous. Psalm 75 verse 8 explains the symbol. The psalmist says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he, he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to go drink a cup. And what he means is that when he goes to the cross, he's going to drink the cup of the Lord's wrath, every last drop of it. He will go to the cross, and there at the cross, he's going to be treated like the disobedient and the ungodly. He's going to take the cup that has been reserved for the wicked of the earth, and he's going to drink it every last drop. Jesus points us to a second symbol. Again, in verse 38, he, he asks his disciples, are, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
Again, we have to ask, well, what is Jesus talking about baptism? I've heard that word before. We heard about it in chapter 1. John was baptizing people in the River Jordan. We've heard about it in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus calls us to baptize the nations. We do it in our, our Sunday morning rituals sometimes. We, we baptize people when they come to faith and join the church. Rather, Jesus is not talking about any of these things. Rather, when Jesus uses the word baptism in this sense, he's, he's using it to reveal the trial that he's going to experience. Jesus is saying to his disciples, at the cross, he's going to be overwhelmed. At the cross, he's literally going to be plunged. He's going to be submerged in a sea of suffering. Psalm 69 helps us understand what Jesus is talking about when he speaks about baptism. He says, this is what it means for me to be baptized at the cross. The psalmist says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in a deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Deliver me from the sinking in the mire. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. What Jesus is saying is that in coming days, when he goes to the cross, he's going to be baptized. He's going to be plunged into this great sea where there is no footholds. He's going to be baptized in this great sea where there's overwhelming waves and there's no opportunity for his head to rise above them to grasp a breath of air. Jesus is saying, I'm going to what Psalm 69 describes. I sink in the deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Jesus has one more symbol, a payment. Verse 45, Jesus preaches, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Verse 45 is, is the key to our text as we try to understand what's going on in these symbols. And, and in verse 45, we can start putting all of the symbols together and they become coherent in verse 45. We ask, well, what does this cup, what does this baptism actually get done? Well, Jesus answers in verse 45. He gives up his life. He drinks the cup of God's wrath. He's plunged beneath the deep waters. Why? So that he might provide his life as a ransom payment for sinners. Jesus explains that at the cross he will substitute his innocent life for the life of his disciples so that they might be free from their burden of sin and all the guilt that goes along with sin. What we find is that Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53 verses 10 through 12. Isaiah 53 helps us make sense of what this payment is all about. Isaiah prophesies of Jesus, he says, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make the many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. What's going to happen at the cross? Well, Jesus explains he's going to substitute his life for the many. His life will be the, the payment for the many. Or as Isaiah says it, he shall bear their iniquities. And by bearing their iniquities, the many will be accounted righteous. So here's Jesus. He picks up these three pungent symbols. Here's the cup. Here's the baptism. Here's the ransom payment. And he places all of these symbols before his men. And here the truth of the cross comes barreling down upon them. And the application of Jesus' words are, are so powerful and so plain. 
What Jesus is telling these men is this. What, what you need is not a Messiah who can lift you up to powerful positions or a king who can give you privileged seats in the kingdom of God. No. What these weak men, what these fearful men, what these sinful men, what these faithless men need is a Messiah who goes to drink the bitter cup of God's wrath, who goes to, to take the, the cup appointed for the lawless. What these men need is someone who's going to be overwhelmed and drowned in the deeps, a man who's going to be cast into that great sea where there is no foothold, where there is no opportunity to rise above the waves. What these men need the most is a man, a savior, a Messiah, who will pay the ransom price for their very lives by bearing their sins. And as we consider this text for ourselves, this is the truth that our souls need, is it not? We don't need a Messiah who can lift us up to powerful positions of glory. No, we're too fearful for that. We're too weak for that. We're too sinful for that. We're too faithless for that. What we need... What we need is a Messiah who will go and drink the bitter cup of God's wrath that was reserved for us. What we need is a Messiah who will go headlong into that great sea of suffering and and plunge himself, immerse himself, shipwreck himself there for our sake. What we need more than anything else is our Messiah, our Jesus, to be the ransom payment for our very lives. And we have precious good news this morning because the Jesus that we see at work in Mark chapter 10 is the Jesus who is still at work today. The Jesus who worked in Mark chapter 10 is currently seated at the right hand of God and he he works today by his spirit and he is working this morning through the preaching of the word. His, His gospel is at work and he's speaking to us this morning. He's preaching the gospel in our ears. He's saying, I am the one who came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. I am the one who who came to make the guilty righteous in the sight of God by bearing your sin and guilt. Jesus preaches, I am the physician of sin-sick souls. He preaches, I have come to call the sinners to repentance. We have to understand that it is this preaching and this preaching alone that can correct the sinful heart. Nothing else can. Because it is the preaching of the cross that humbles us to the floor. What do these symbols do? What does the preaching of the cross do? Well, it teaches us who we truly are. It teaches us that we are in no position to be grasping after these honor, honor, titles of honor, these seats of glory. Even more, the cross teaches us that we're in no position to be concerned about matters of envy or covetousness. No, the, the cross preaches you are weak, you are needy, you are sinful. And the cross provides us exactly what we need. A Savior who goes to settle accounts for us. And if we truly get the gospel of Jesus this morning, if we get the Gospel of Mark and what Jesus has been teaching throughout, the only thing we should be concerned about in our lives, the thing we should be keen for in our lives is this, grasping for the mercy and grace of Jesus. That's what the Christian life is about day after day, waking up in the morning and being concerned about one thing. Today I'm going to grasp for the mercy and grace of Jesus, going to bed at night and thinking about the day. Did I grasp for the mercy and grace of Jesus today and that alone? That's what the Christian life is. 
So if we've worked through our tax and Jesus has received, revealed the, the barrier that keeps us from the cross, it's our pride, it's our, our sin, it's our high-mindedness. And then he, he applies the cross to us and he corrects our hearts with the cross, killing our sin, showing us who we are, providing himself to us. And Jesus does one last work. He, he calls us to the cross. And we have to understand here that Jesus' preaching of the cross comes with implications for us. Meaning that the, the cross actually changes our lives. And we can ask this morning, well, what does it mean, practically speaking, to be a person who grasps only for the mercy and grace of Jesus? What does it mean for how I, I treat my brothers and sisters in Jesus? What effect does it have? We can ask another question. If I'm a person who grasps for the grace and mercy of Jesus, how, how, does that, how does that change my expectations of what I will receive and get out of this life? And Jesus not only gives us correction, but he is calling us to a different life. And he spells out the call of the cross in two ways to us. He teaches, first, that those who trust in Christ will suffer with Christ. And second, those who trust in Christ will serve with Christ. We can just take these one by one as the text presents. So to, to, to trust Christ is to suffer with Christ. And, and so Jesus has preached the cross to James and John. And then he tells them what the cross means for their life. Jesus says in verse 39, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And so we've already dealt with these words, cup, baptism, and we have to ask, well, what is Jesus talking about? Is he implying that James and John are going to share in the wrath of God? That these men are going to provide their lives as a ransom payment for sinners? The is no. We just can read to the end of the Gospel of Mark. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, what do we find? Well, we find only Jesus going to the cross. We only find Jesus suffering the wrath of God. We only find Jesus offering up his life as a ransom payment for sinners. Not one of these men are crucified with Jesus. They all run the opposite way. Rather, in verse 39, Jesus is, is preaching to his men and he's preaching powerfully. He says to them, If you follow me, you must stop dreaming about glory and you must stop fixing your eyes upon positions of honor. Rather, you must understand the inevitability of your own suffering. Jesus expounds to his men, My kingdom in this present age is not a matter of fine golden seats or positions of power, but of suffering and cross. He says, The cup I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. This changes everything. The cross of Jesus changes everything about what we should expect out of our present life. We have to get this down into our souls. Understand this. God has not betrayed you if your life has not turned out as you thought it should. God has not done you any wrong if your present days are marked by suffering or trouble. God's plans for you have not been subverted if your life seems out of control. Rather, Jesus explains, what does it mean to follow after Jesus in discipleship? Well, it means to suffer. Jesus explains, what does it mean to belong to the kingdom of God in this present age? It means to suffer. Jesus says, the cup I drink, you will drink. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. That's what it means to follow me. 
And when we view our suffering and our trouble through Jesus' preaching through the cross, we actually can, can see God's kindness in our suffering. We find that God in his grace is actually determined to conform us into the image of his crucified son. We can look at our suffering with, with purpose. We can look at our, our suffering with a level of understanding. And so we can ask, well, what does God give to all of those he loves? Well, he places into the hands of his beloved the cup that his son drank to the full. And he baptizes those whom he loves in the same overwhelming water where the Son of God was baptized. Jesus tells us, those who trust in me will suffer with me. That's what it means to follow after me. So after speaking to James and John, Jesus continues his work of of calling us to the cross. He speaks to the rest of his men in verses 42 through 44. And he explains that to trust in him means to serve with him. Jesus says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so as we think about this whole story that Mark has given us, the disciples had a, a very definite understanding of what greatness was. It consisted of lordly power. It consisted of privileged position, of honorific titles, authority and power to do what you want when you want. And the truth is, this, this, this definition of greatness has not changed in our own day. And what we see happening in the disciples' hearts happens in our own hearts. What do we so often want so badly? To do what we want, when we want to, how we want to. But Jesus comes to his men and he preaches in their hearts in verses 42 through 44. He says, you must stop trying to climb over each other's backs. You must stop trying always to have the upper hand. You must stop trying to beat someone else to the first place. Jesus preaches to his men. He reveals the the kingdom of God to them and what it means to be in the kingdom of God. Jesus preaches, this is who you are. You are a servant. Even more, you are a slave. As we consider Jesus' words in verses 42 through 44, Jesus is provocative. As you think about it, I don't think you've ever dreamed about being a servant. I don't think any one of us wrote in our high school yearbooks, plans for the future, I'm going to study to be a slave. I'm going to devote the next 10 years of my life to studying this trade. But what we find Jesus doing in his mercy and his grace is he's writing a new script from our, for our lives. He's saving us from self-centeredness. And he's explaining to us the true nature of greatness in the kingdom of God. He explains. It belongs to the one who serves. And he's teaching us what honor and privilege truly is. It belongs to the one who casts aside all of his honor and privilege and becomes the slave of all. And so as we think about it, the cross of Jesus actually changes everything about how we treat our brothers and sisters in Jesus. In light of the gospel, in light of the cross, our brothers and sisters are no longer a commodity to be bought or sold. No longer are they our competition to be climbed over. No longer are they barriers to what we seek, hemming us off. No. The gospel of Jesus actually frees us because in the gospel they become our our mission fields. The gospel changes us. The cross changes us. We aim to serve them. 
We aim to cast aside our rights, our privileges, our honors, our wealth for their sake. To be a slave of all. Jesus tells us, those who trust in me will serve with me. Because my gospel has changed you. You've become a servant in the gospel. And so here we have it again. Jesus has come to his disciples. He's preached to them the gospel. The son of man must suffer many things. And what happened? Well, the disciples failed. They didn't heed Jesus' words. Instead, they saw positions of honor and glory for themselves. But what do we find in this text? Well, we find the glory of Jesus. It's revealed in his compassion and his kindness. He is persistent with his disciples as he leads them to salvation. We see the persistent grace of Jesus. And he continues to work upon his men. He sees their sin and he preaches the cross to them again and again and again. As we consider this text, this is our hope this morning. What's happened here this morning? Well, we've heard the gospel. And when we hear the gospel, our sin is exposed. And if the Spirit's been at work this morning, what's been exposed in our own hearts? Well, our own envy. Our own prideful first place seeking. Our own failures come to light. But here in this text, we see the mercy of Jesus afresh. What does Jesus do? Well, he sticks with us and he keeps preaching the gospel in our ears. He keeps mediating the power of God. And the good news of the gospel that we see in Mark chapters 8 through 10 is that Jesus is a Savior who persists in his purposes of grace. So here's the gospel. And what must we do? Well, in repentance, we must cast aside all of our sin. And in faith, we must grab hold of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do give thanks. Your word is good. We thank you that your spirit convicts us of sin. What a blessing that is to be convicted of sin. We thank you for the ministry of Jesus, that he is persistent in his purposes of grace, that he continues to preach the gospel to us, and that he has done it yet again today. We pray, kill our sin. Supply us with repentance and faith afresh. Be our Savior. We pray this in your Son's name. Amen.